Amen. Good morning. Just a big shout out to our two youth speakers today. Grace, fantastic job. I stand here encouraged. Very well done. And what a coincidence that young man that shared just one centimeter shorter than I am. May look taller than me, but he's not. Great job. Thank you, Sammy. Great hair as well. Well done. Uh, I'm going to start with a story today. Not too long ago, I was at the DMV. You know what that means to be at the DMV? That's at least a 30-minute wait. And I was there, and I was in line, and they still have the COVID steps there. So every minute you take the little duck steps to get a little closer to the counter. I was there, it was looking like a 45 to an hour wait, and I was persevering. And I bet you can guess what happened. As I get closer, there's one lady in front of me at this point. In walks a guy. And he walks past the line that I've been standing in for 45 minutes. And he's doing kind of the Conor McGregor kind of walk. He's kind of doing this as he comes up to the desk. And he obviously knows the lady. And he goes up to her and he makes a joke. The joke is unfunny. I should know. Oh, but she laughs. Oh, she knows him. She likes him. And she takes care of his paperwork before my paperwork. He's in and out in two minutes. I turned to the lady in front of me. Man, she's not having it. Thought she was going to throw hands. Thankfully, she did not. You know that feeling, though. Here's another story. A little more serious. It's basketball time here in North Carolina. March Madness is right around the corner. Big rivalry game last night. Duke defeated UNC. Take it, Tar Heels. I was reminded when I was in college, the greatest player for um, Duke was a guy named Grant Hill, and he was so talented. Everybody said he's going to be the next Jordan. In fact, he gets to the NBA after winning two championships and he wins more all-star votes than Michael Jordan. That's how good he was. In fact, if you know Ball, for the first six years, he had better stats than anybody save Larry Bird and Oscar Robertson. He was going, man. And then one day he's playing and he turns the ankle, which led to surgery, which led to problems after the surgery that almost killed him. He made a comeback, but he never achieved anywhere near his full potential. So sad, it just didn't seem right. Here's another story, much more serious. For the past nine years in Yemen, the country's been racked by a civil war. Over 150,000 people have been killed in this war, and the UN released numbers a quarter of a million others have died because of a famine or healthcare facilities have been destroyed because of the war so nobody can get healthcare. A quarter of a million people have died. Now all of these stories have different levels of degree, right? But they have a common thread. They all reek 
from the stench of injustice. You can feel that when you hear the story. Things are happening that just aren't right. They should not be. This is just a short list. Not trying to be exhaustive here. You know abuse, the subsequent lack of response to abuse is happening even in our churches. Malpractice, murder, crime, racism, discrimination. One guy said this week, if you want to find injustice, just go over to a globe and spin it. Put your finger anywhere. Even if you land in water, there's piracy. There's a tanker that's spilled all everywhere. Injustice covers the globe. And how do we make sense of it, especially as believers? And will it ever end? These questions haunt us each and every day. Well, we've been reading here on Sunday mornings through the book of Ecclesiastes. Go ahead and turn there if you want to. This sermon might demand a little bit of a biblical agility because we're also going to be in Luke 4. So if you can turn to two places at once with two fingers, go ahead and do it. If you're on a phone, it will be more easy, I think. The book of Ecclesiastes is kind of like listening to a song from another era. If you've ever listened to maybe songs from the 60s, when all that drama was going on, you're thinking, you hear the lyrics and you're like, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Ecclesiastes can be like that. You might have to replay it two or three times in your head before you get the message. But it has as a book certain central messages that flow from beginning to end. They keep coming back up so you can tell that the author and God himself truly care about these issues that he brings up again and again and again. So even if everything in the book is not clear to you, you do get one thing that's crystal clear. One of the chief things on the heart of God, if you're reading through Ecclesiastes, is he has a heart against injustice. It's comforting that the Bible as a whole does not ignore this issue of injustice in our world. And Ecclesiastes is no exception here. So we're going to open the word this morning. See what God has for us here today. As I read through the text, I see three comforts for us today as we face injustice. Three comforts from the Word of God. This is the first one. The first one is that God reveals injustice. And remember what's going on here in the book of Ecclesiastes. You've got a teacher, a wise man, who is kind of gathering everyone around. And as he gathers everyone around, he's just dealing out wisdom. Like, come on, everybody gather here. I want to tell you what's up. I'm going to tell you about this part of light. I'm going to drop this bit of wisdom. He also is going to talk about the injustices that he himself sees. So what I'm going to do now is just highlight some of the passages throughout the book where he settles down on this idea of injustice. He hits at it from different angles. It's very interesting. The first one I want to call your attention to is in chapter 1, verse 15. And he's going to paint with a broad stroke here. But listen to what he says. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be 
counted. It's a little bit cryptic there, but you get the sense when he says, what's crooked can't be made straight. Injustices will not be easily fixed. That's what he wants you to know. There's another passage in chapter 2. Ron, you actually touched on this last week. It's verse 18. Verse 18 has the wise teacher scanning back over his life and he's reflecting on his work and he's got a bit of a problem. Listen to what he says. He says, I hated all my work. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why? Well, saw that I must leave it to another man who's coming after me. That doesn't sound fair. One comedian said this, the caterpillar does all the work, but the butterfly gets all the publicity. That's what this guy's feeling. I've done all this work. Now I've got to hand it off to another guy. There's a futility that you should feel here from God speaking about your experience in your world today. An inescapability of the brokenness of this world. There is no escaping injustice. There's no escaping injustice. Also, when God speaks about injustice here in Ecclesiastes, he speaks specifically about what we might call institutional oppression. Institutional oppression. In fact, that's a big chunk of what he wants to tell you here especially by those who have power, by those who are in control, like governments or rulers or judicial system, law enforcement, spiritual leaders. He knows there's injustice. You can see this in chapter 3, verse 16. Again, the teacher just speaking all of the truth by the Spirit about what he's learned about life. 3.16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, where there's supposed to be goodness and justice happening, even there there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, in structures where you would think you would find it, even there was wickedness. The same flavor comes out. Chapters 4 through 5. We don't have time to read in all of it, but I want to zero in First section of chapter 4, first three verses, very telling. The author says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors was power and there was no one to comfort them. Now, don't note here, note the doubly crippling aspect of what he's seen. The impoverished are not only taken advantage of, but there's no one to turn, right? The double problem. And we're going to circle back to this. But in verse 2, he says, I, I, I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living. And justice is so bad. Verse 3, rather than both is he who has not yet even been born and has not even seen the evil deeds. The injustices of this world are severe. Now, if we were to flip over to chapter 5, he stays on task. I give him credit. 
verses 8 and 9 from chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. That's how bad it is. If you see something wrong going on, shouldn't be surprised. Don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over him. Political maneuvering that steps on the vulnerable is nothing new. This book is 3,000 years old. It's going on back then. People with power will be particularly tempted to abuse it. Sometimes it's just outright confusing. Consider the case of former United States Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy, very nobly, on the one hand, said these words. He said, when we close our eyes and ears to the corrupt because we're too busy or too frightened, when we fail to speak up and speak out, we strike a blow against freedom, against decency, and against justice. It's a good quote. But on the other hand, Bobby Kennedy was regularly guilty of the injustice of cheating on his wife over and over again with Marilyn Monroe, a particularly vulnerable person. Some even say he's culpable in her death or cover-up. The Bible says when you see these type of injustices, inconsistencies, do not be amazed at the matter. Wisdom knows better. Wisdom just doesn't look at the world with a positive spin. It also sees the darkness. Another kind of emphasis he's going to have here is a group of passages that kind of teach us that nice guys finish last. In other words, you might be tempted to believe kind of the popular level idea of karma. Hey, if I, if I just treat people nice all the time, they're going to treat me nice all the time and things will just work out but if I'm an evil doer things are going to go bad for me Ecclesiastes crushes karma okay this is what he says chapter 7 verse 15 in my vain life I've seen everything so take it from him he's seen it there is a righteous man who perishes. What? We'd expect him to flourish, but the righteous man perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life by what? In his evil doing. That ain't right. Doesn't sound good. Notice how he said, in my vain life. He's going to say that again in a minute. There's that concept that we've seen throughout the whole book of vanity. We translate that as smoke or vapor. What he's saying is the idea of justice and injustice is something that you're never going to quite get your head around. You're always going to be asking these questions. Why does this exist? Don't try to think you can have it figured out or completely stop. It's like grabbing smoke. You'll grab at it and it will continue to escape you. People will be rewarded for wickedness. This week as many weeks before I preach, I sit down with believers here in the church and we just read the text together and we go over it. And this week, one of the people in the little group said, you know what? Let me tell you about me at my company. The very people who've been guilty of criminal acts are the ones who are being promoted at my company. 
I feel this. And it goes on and on. That shouldn't be. And God knows it. It should not be. Look in chapter 8. He's going to say a very similar thing. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the righteous. I said that this is also a vanity. It's, it's, it's a vapor. It's, it's smoke. We can finish up our all too quick survey in chapter 9. Verse 11. Where the author says, again, I saw that under the sun, you know who wins the race? The race doesn't go to the swift. You know who wins the battle? The battle isn't won by the strong. The bread doesn't go to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time, chance happened to them all. I can't figure this out. One of the keys of wisdom is you admitting that you don't really understand where some of these injustices are coming from. I'm very thankful that the author of Ecclesiastes speaks in a real way and he's telling us, you know what? God sees all that you're seeing. God sees. When, when you get upset by this, don't think that God doesn't have all the information. He does. He does. You know, I found out early on in parenting now, now I'm, I'm juggling six, and one of the things that is the worst is if I am in a parenting situation and the kids think that I don't have all the information. For instance, recently, you know, the challenge in my house is keeping the ice cream, Right? I want the ice cream after the game. I bought the ice cream. Come home, it's not there. You know, I open it up. I watch the ball game. I open it up, look forward to this. Man, it's not even a chocolate chunk that's left or a marshmallow that's left. It's just the nut. Why leave me the nut? And why put it back in there if you're not going to leave anything? So I turn to my child and I say, wonderful child of mine, what's up? Why'd you eat all the ice cream yeah oh man i just got home don't accuse me you didn't know i but i just got home okay five more suspects hey you got a spoon in your hand what's up <laughs> why did you eat it all oh well what you don't know is i just had a little small she had two scoops oh you had two scoops well i didn't have the last scoop it was him walk over here Finally, I get to the youngest. He's got chocolate stains on the mouth. <laughs> I got him now. Why'd you finish off all the ice cream? This ain't ice cream. This is from your pudding that I finished off. <laughs> None of them wants to hear that I don't have all of the information because it's injustice of me. If I'm acting without all the information, so it is comforting for me to know, as the psalmist would say in Psalm 121, during all of this injustice, God is not asleep. He's not sleeping on the job. Let that 
comfort you. In His infinite wisdom and goodness, He's well aware of your personal slights, your mean neighbor, crime on the streets, police brutality, civil war in Myanmar. He knows it. He's not asleep. And this should give you hope. And as we step back from the book of Ecclesiastes and we look at the whole broader picture in the rest of the Bible, we will see that God is very active. He's not just aware of injustice, but He feels it. His heart is open. He cares. And He's in it with you. The next thing I want you to see is that God feels injustice. Think back for a minute on the story of the Exodus. You might remember the story of the Exodus. Moses is going to meet Yahweh for the first time. What happens? Well, there's introductions. What's your name? Take off your shoes. Then what does God say to Moses? Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. But he doesn't start there, right? He doesn't just stop there. My people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. So there's awareness because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, verse 8. And I have come down. Why is he coming down? He cares. He feels it. He's on the move. He's not passive. We see this in the book of Hosea. Right at the start. Chapter 11. And the prophet is speaking for God. And God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I went there. I called my son out. When God sees injustice, he winces as a father winces when his own son is mistreated. God recoils at injustice. And he comes to you in the midst of it. Later in his law, we see God making all of these provisions for the victims of injustice. The fatherless, the sojourner, the widow. God says, when you see poverty, open wide your hand to your brother. When you see poverty, open wide your hand. That's not a statement of passivity. He's not distant. He's not indifferent to the sufferings of our world. In the mid-1800s, in North America in the mid-1800s, the most powerful nation was not the United States of America. The most powerful nation was the Comanche nation. They were so good at horsemanship and archery that they ruled the southern plains. One of their leaders was Quanah Parker, leader of the Antelope Band. And Quanah Parker, unfortunately, like many Native Americans, when he was just a young kid, he saw soldiers come into the camp and massacre everyone in the camp besides him and his brother. He's a young man. He escaped, found another band, and for the rest of his life, he acted out of the feeling of injustice. Went on to become a great war leader, a great politician, did so much for his nation. God is like that. God feels your injustice 
That's to say he's not apathetic. In his infinite loveliness, God cares. The psalmist knows that. Psalm 94, 19. The psalmist says, when the cares of my heart are many, what happens? God, your consolations, they cheer my soul. Now, I want to ponder with you for just a moment the life of Jesus. When you think about God caring about injustice, coming towards injustice, acting on injustice, better focus on Jesus because he's God in the flesh. So in the New Testament, think for a moment about the virgin birth. When we think about the virgin birth, it's usually Christmas time. It's usually we think about it theologically. And we should. But rarely do we think about it sociologically. Think about Mary and the relationship she had in her life. She was betrothed. And then by the Spirit she conceived. Which meant that after three or four months, everybody in her inner circle started to know that, hey, you're pregnant, but you're not married yet. And that did not fly in the Hebrew culture. You could be put to death for that. It was considered a crime. But everywhere she went for the next five months, even if she explained, no, 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 the Holy Spirit, you see, is conceived within me. Even if she explained that to her closest friends, you know they raised the eyebrow. You know they thought, uh-huh. Okay, whatever you say, Mary. So even in the womb, Jesus was seen as a child and he was judged wrongly. He was judged with injustice even before he was born. Think about after he was born. Born in Bethlehem. They had a king already. His name was Herod. Turns out he didn't like other kings. What's his solution? He says, well, I'm going to kill the nursery. Every baby, two and under, will be exterminated. What did Jesus do? Well, thankfully, an angel intervenes, and he's off. He's flying to Egypt. God is now a refugee. He knows injustice. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. Man, one of the first stories we read about Jesus is that he is under Satan's attack. Why is Satan doing that? Jesus never did anything wrong. Jesus didn't dabble in the occult. Jesus wasn't listening to Sam Smith's songs. He didn't deserve a one-on-one -on -one rumble with the devil. And yet he got it. Think about his teaching ministry. One of his first sermons was in a synagogue. We see it in Luke 4. And it didn't go very well. Jesus opens up the Old Testament and he simply reads Isaiah. And then Jesus says, you know, I am God who has come to fulfill this. The people drove him out of the city. That city happened to be built on a cliff. So they drove him to the edge of the cliff. And then they went to put an innovative twist on the act of stoning. 
Normally when you stone somebody, you grab a rock and you throw it. But they thought, let's twist this. Let's grab Jesus and throw him on the rock off the cliff. Thankfully, Jesus has his own vapor game, right? He got away. They didn't get him. Think about at the temple. Jesus goes in to the temple and he sees Gentile worship being all shook up, all interrupted. So he acts. He runs all the merchants out of the temple and said, this should not be. Not to mention his arrest, his trial, his execution. All of this was unjust. So it goes for Jesus. He's always seen or suffering one injustice after another. And I'm sure he was tempted by the hopelessness of it. I think that in part because of what we read in Hebrews 4.15. We're reminded we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And I would add to that the weaknesses of all of broken creation, including injustice. He sympathizes with it. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You look around at the world, you get depressed or hopeless. You're tempted to despair. I think Jesus was also tempted to despair. What a grace it is to know that Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses and the injustices of this world. He's not a far off God watching with a neutral cold gaze. That's not who Jesus is. He came and he lived this. And in the face of today's abounding injustices, you can trust that Jesus knows this pain. Think about Psalm 23. What's the glory there? The glory is not that you will go into the valley of death only once. Or that you'll never go into the valley of death. No, the glory is when you're into the valley of the shadow of death, you're not alone. You have a good shepherd who is with you. He's experienced all the temptations you have. And he cares and he's with you in your injustices so we've seen God sees injustice he doesn't deny it he reveals it also we've seen he's moved by it he feels it he cares he comes to you finally take hope that he deals with injustice God deals with injustice I don't know how your heart is wired but depending on my mood and depending on the situation that I'm involved with, I need God to do any one of these three things. Sometimes I just feel like, man, God, are you not aware of what's going on? Do you even see this? Holy cow. It cannot be. Yes, he knows it. Other times I'm like, doesn't anybody care? Am I the only one that cares about this issue? Good night. If you cared, you'd be doing this this Jesus cares. You must believe Jesus cares. But at other times, I'm just like, this has to be fixed. Who is going to deal with this? The Bible's answer 
His justice comes in Jesus and Jesus alone. First thing we see when we look at Jesus' life is that Jesus flips the script of justice. Jesus flips the script of justice. Now think again. I'm going to read again from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1, where the author says, the wise man, he says, this is how justice is always going to work. He says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there's no one to comfort them. He's just saying that's the way life is going to work. That's the way injustices are going to rule. The powerful are going to take advantage of the weak. Now recall the sermon I said from Luke 4. One of Jesus' first that we have. And recall the text that he preaches in Luke 4. This is what he reads. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord's upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. To recover sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, I'm the guy. And the guy's going to do it. What's he telling them? I'm about to flip the script. For all of history, here's been the trend. Those with power are going to use it against the oppressed. But watch me. I'm going to turn this thing on its head. I'll move towards the poor. And I will be their comfort. I will be their justice. And then what's amazing is for eight out of the next nine stories in the Gospel of Luke, we see justice on the move. We see Jesus doing exactly what he says he's going to do. Now, it's crucial to understand when Jesus sees poverty, when Jesus sees sickness, when Jesus sees Satan at work, he sees that as injustice. Why? Why does Jesus see a satanic attack as injustice? I don't get it. Well, the Bible says that when God created everything, it was good, but people rebelled against God unjustly and that initial injustice of rebellion against God cracked creation now when you see sickness when you see poverty when you see someone attacked by a demon that's the ripple effects of injustice from the fall so when Jesus comes on he's dealing with injustice 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 even if we don't really realize it in the story that's what he's about. So when you see Jesus in the Gospels move towards broken people, he's counteracting what's going on with injustice. You can look at it in Luke 4. What I'm going to do now is just touch on, if you have Luke 4 open, you can just kind of scroll. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to summarize how Jesus lives out and he begins to deal with injustice. In a very real way. First story. There's a demon possessed man in a synagogue. What happens? Jesus routs this fiend. It's an injustice for a demon to defile someone who bears the image of God. Jesus knows it. He routs him. 
Next story. Peter's mother-in-law. She's got the fever. She's suffering. What does Jesus do when he walks in? He rebukes the fever. Who talks like that? Jesus does because it should not be. Next story. The sun is setting down. The day is over. But Jesus is still going strong. He's still healing the sick towards the end of the day, bringing comfort to the hurting. Next story, we see more demons. They're discovered. What's Jesus do? He renders them mute because Jesus has heard enough. He's the high judge and he silences the injustice of demon possession. Next, we see the disciples, the fishermen. They've been fishing all night. You'd think they would have caught one fish. There's no fish. What's Jesus do? He fills their net. Where they are empty, he fills it up. Nobody's going hungry this night. Fish for everybody. Big fish fry. Why? Jesus has arrived. Next story. There's a leper. He comes to Jesus. He stretches out his hand to Jesus. Jesus doesn't recoil. Mm. Instead, he speaks the guy clean. Just speaks him. Speaks him clean. That's justice dealing with the injustice. Next, there's a paralyzed man. What happens to him? He's lowered through the roof. Jesus raises him, raises him up. Because sickness will not reign once justice has arrived. Next is the story of these treacherous, traitorous tax collectors. They've all gathered around for a meal. The Pharisees are snubbing them. Why are you, why are you hanging out with them? What's Jesus saying? I've come for them. I've come for them. Justice has arrived and he's setting things straight. God is dealing with the injustice in this world in Jesus Christ. You can see it in his life. Can't always see it in our culture, but you can see it in the life of Jesus. Not only that, there's two more things at play here. First, illustration. What do you think would happen? I'm not going to do it because we have some equipment up here. What do you think would happen if I took this curtain behind me and just started pulling it back a little bit? You know what would happen? You would get a little bit of glimpse into the backstage area. You'd see our equipment back there, but you'd also see this staging because they've got a Greek play coming up of some sort. A little bit of glimpse of the part of the stage that's real and always here, but you don't normally get to see. When you see Jesus working these miracles in the New Testament, we see a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth that normally goes unseen. A glimpse into what will and must be. A taste of the future when all of creative order is going to be set straight, including all of the broken injustices of this age. It is this final hope in the righteous judgment of God 
that the writer of Ecclesiastes has a good grasp on. In fact, he decides to wrap up the entire book on this note of final judgment against injustices. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, after all I've said to you, I got this to say, he says, God will bring every deed into judgment. Even the secret things, good or bad, God sees it, he'll do justice, hold on, it's coming. It's real as the backstage behind the curtain. You can glimpse it in Jesus and it's coming. We see Jesus say the same thing in Matthew 25, 31. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, first time he came in his glory. The second time he's coming in his glory with all the angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne. Then justice will have its sway. John described this final judgment in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, and that's justice. So as we read the Gospels, we see Jesus doing these new creation type of miracles. Take hope. Take hope. His demonstration of justice against evil in his ministry is a foretaste of his future justice to come. So we see Jesus' pursuit of the poor and anticipates his future justice. But it illustrates something else. Here's something else. If you look at Jesus, here's what his life illustrates. When we see Jesus using his power to help the vulnerable, we understand deep gospel realities. We're able to understand better deep gospel realities. What in the world do you mean by that? Well, people with vast physical and social needs, they picture our own spiritual needs, right? When you're reading the gospel and you see this parade of vulnerable people hurting people, that's a picture of your own spiritual need. Now, let's be honest. When we talk about injustice, you probably don't think about yourself. <laughs> you probably are like me and your mind goes to the DMV line. You're just like, it's not right that he came in and left and I'm still in love. That's the way we usually think about injustice. So we think, ah, oh, so sorry those people have to suffer in that way. But God sees a much more robust picture, okay? it seems that you and I are a part of the problem. Now consider the story I mentioned earlier. It's a famous one from Luke 5, 17. The story of some friends bringing a paralyzed guy to Jesus, right? What happened in that story? Well, Jesus is down there and they are up here on the roof. And if you're in that room, all of a sudden you see the tiles start to fall. Dust is coming down, now hit by the sunbeams. What's going on? Oh, someone is being lowered. Lowered on a stretcher with ropes. You see his friends up there. They're full of trust. They're hoping that Jesus, he's going to heal this guy. And they lower him all the way down. And he, he boom, hits with a thump on the clay ground. 
And here's Jesus, the one who can help him. And you're there and you're expecting Jesus to react and you know what he's going to do. Jesus is going to say, I, I heal thee, right? He's not going to put up with this suffering in front of him. What does Jesus say? He says, man, your sins are forgiven. And I'm like, what? what the paralyzed man in front of you, if anything, he's the victim here, right? He's not some sinner. He's the vulnerable. Why is Jesus bringing up in the middle of this healing story, in the middle of this miracle moment, why is he bringing up the evil things that this guy has done? Why is he bringing up his sin nature? Why would Jesus do that? Well, Jesus sees his hurting. Jesus understands the injustice of one man having the full use of his legs and another man doesn't. And yet, and yet, he also sees the injustice of sin. So Jesus dives headfirst into this beautiful teaching moment and we're in what he says. He said, I'm going to heal him that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. The whole reason I'm healing him is so that you'll know that I can forgive sins. Then he says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go on home. And he does it. But we're reading this, and as astounding as it is that Jesus can make a paralyzed man walk, raising his body off the ground, it's far more spectacular that he has the authority to forgive sins. Why is he majoring on this? Precisely because he knows we're all guilty of injustice towards God. We see God's glory, but we look, we look away. We just turn our backs to something far less glorious. We know his beautiful divine nature, but we stuff it down. We deny it. His creative power is on full display. But we worship the creation instead of the creator. Along with the paralyzed man, we all need our evil to be dealt with. We need our sin to be forgiven. But it turns out that's no small thing, right? Why? Because of the greatness of the holiness of God. Our offenses are huge. And when justice happens, there must be a payment. This week, I know some of you guys have been following the awful murder trial, double murder trial, Alex Murdoch in South Carolina, right? On Thursday, they found this guy guilty of killing his wife and his son, Paul Paul. And I was watching the judge as he announces the guilty verdict. The judge says, I'm going to take a day off here so we can all prepare for the sentence that I'm going to impose. So that was on Thursday, this past Friday, they all show back up to the courtroom. CNN is there, every major news network in the world. And here's the judge. What if he comes out and he says, 
though you've been found guilty of a double murder here, I'm going to hand wave it. You're guilty, just walk on out of here. That's not what he said. Because justice demands a punishment. In our case, Jesus' sacrificial death is that punishment, is that penalty. Jesus went to the cross as your substitute so that you might have his righteousness and he might have your wrath. When that happens, the demands of justice have been met in Jesus Christ. We stand morally upright in God's eyes. He declares to the whole world a judicial verdict of forgiven. Even though the final judgment won't happen until the end of time, the declaration has been made for you by God in Jesus Christ. You're saved. You're forgiven. It's justice because God does make the payment. And it's huge in the death of his only son. So as you see Jesus ministering in the gospels, remember that you too are in need of his forgiveness. I want to circle back to Ecclesiastes and just ask the question, how can I be used by Jesus in the demolition of injustices in my own life and in this world? Really practical. Ecclesiastes is a practical book. And as we've looked over these things, certain things have stood out, so here they are. How can I be used by Jesus in the demolition of injustices now. I get it. Punishment's coming for evil and I want to do my part now. First, Ecclesiastes teaches us don't look the other way. When you see an injustice, don't look the other way. We looked at eight passages in Ecclesiastes. They show us that God doesn't deny the messiness of this world and neither should you. Don't just turn away. Second, understand that you'll never quite get your head around all the reasons for injustice. Sometimes I lay awake at night. Ah, why did this happen? Must have been something here, something that. I could have done this better, that better. Surely that person just hasn't seen. It's vapor. You're never going to quite understand it. And Ecclesiastes said, that's okay. That's okay. It's a vapor. Third, take your lament to God. When you see injustice, don't deny it. Lament it. Take that to God. What do you mean? Well, remember when the teacher said in Ecclesiastes, ah, it's better not to even be born than to be born into this life with all these injustices. That's a lament. Cry that out to God. And share it with people you're close to. Lament the brokenness of the world and there's some healing just in this dependent act towards God. God, I can't help it. I can't change everything, but I lament it. I have to wrap my head around the fact that we sent two missionaries to a country where there's a civil war and I can't do a thing about that civil war. But I can call and I can lament it as I call out to God. 
I can mourn the deaths and the perilous plight of innocent victims of human trafficking, prejudice, murder. I can call out to God to fix things. Fourth, where you have power, protect the vulnerable. Where you have power, protect the vulnerable. Some of you have been handing positions of power in our community and your job. What an opportunity. Seek to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Take every single opportunity to prevent abuse. Honor those who come to you and say, I think I see some abuse here. Move in comfort towards those who are victims of abuse. Like Jesus, use your power and your resources to pursue the disenfranchised. They're easily taken advantage of in our society. Finally, entrust yourself to God. What's the final word in Ecclesiastes? God will bring every deed into judgment. Sounds familiar. When Peter's writing about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, he points us to Jesus and says, this is how you should be. He's your example. Verse 23, Peter said, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So there's some boundaries. He's getting real personal about your own personal reception of injustices. Not going to revile, not going to threaten, but what did he continue to do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And I would say, especially in the regular, ongoing, personal slights in your relationship, in your marriage, this is sage advice. It will transform your relationship. Jesus absorbed some injustices part of your relationship. You might have to absorb, but it's not passive absorption. It's an absorption that entrusts all circumstances in the God who's going to come and he's going to judge justly. In his course on Ecclesiastes, the writer Justin Holcomb said these things. He sums this up nicely. He said, someday Christ will return in great glory and there will be a definitive, comprehensive acknowledgement that he is Lord over all, and he will then judge the living and the dead. All people and forces that opposed him will be vanquished, including death itself. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray that we see today in Jesus Christ, justice is on the move. Let's pray together. God, we do find comfort in the fact that you are not asleep in the midst of the world's injustice. We find comfort that you care and we see it in Jesus and you're on the move. This pain we have today will not 
last forever, but in the now, give us hope. Give us courage to act. Give us backbone. Let us not slink away or ignore or undervalue those who are being oppressed instead. Let us act out the heart of Jesus in justice as we go forth. God, we do this in your name as we treasure Christ together. Amen.